afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Let's begin our day's show with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So welcome everybody to our show here, The Catholic Opinion. Um, I'm, as I said before, Father Anthony, so much of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, we bring in our apostolate with the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, we bring the Latin Mass um, under the auspices of the Diocese of Auckland. We bring the Latin Mass on a daily basis throughout the diocese and the diocese and on Sundays we have our Latin Mass at St. Paul's Chapel in Ponsonby at, uh, on Richmond Road in Ponsonby and we have our daily Masses for all other days of the week at St. Anne's Chapel in Teatatu South so if you're interested in coming along with the Latin Mass you're very, very welcome. You can find information about our apostolate here in Auckland on our website at www.fssp.nz or on our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. And uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're obviously we're nearing, nearing the end of November now. And this coming Sunday, in a couple of days, we've got the last Sunday of uh, those after Pentecost, uh, the 25th Sunday after Pentecost coming up. And the following weekend, we enter into Advent. We reach the 29th of November and that's the first Sunday of Advent. So on that particular day, on the 29th of Sunday, 29th of November, we will be having confirmations at St. Paul's at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, confirmations will be done by Auxiliary Bishop uh, Michael Geelan here in Auckland. So we're really excited about that. There'll be his first time with him coming along to our Latin Mass and uh, our youngsters who are getting confirmed that day are all very, very excited. So you're all welcome to come along to that sung Latin Mass as you are welcome to come along anytime. But you can find, like, as I said, details about that on our webpage or on our Facebook page. So one of the things that uh, <coughs> I have been doing uh, in our apostolate here is the teaching of Catholic apologetics. And we have an apologetics class, which is pretty much... Thomistic Theology 101, the exploration of the idea that God exists and the proofs for God and uh, the nature of God and all things associated with that. With Because in, in our day and age where we have such poor epistemology, in other words, what that means is we have a poor ability to explain and understand basic concepts because we are running on so much of social media and uh, internet assembled type of philosophies that people are really losing their sense of critical thinking and it's now people just criticize without much thought behind it whatsoever so it's really important that we think right no matter what your opinion is in the end we need to be able to order our thought so that we can express idea and we can express support or disagreement with whatever it is that someone else is pointing out there because this is part of being a rational uh, creatures that we use our reason and not use our emotion on all of these types of discussions that we have. So that's on Monday evenings at 7 p.m. We have our apologetics class. And I am going to be beginning another 
a one-year cycle of the class of catechetics. Now, catechetics is the explanation of the teaching of the Catholic faith. And we would bring this under a catechism, which would be a series or a book, which would teach what the Catholic Church or explain what the Catholic Church teaches about her teaching. So I have done over the past years adult catechism classes and I'm going to restart those uh, once again. They will be on Tuesday evenings at 7pm. So the apologetics will be Monday evening 7pm and the catechetics will be on Tuesday evenings at 7pm. We're going to start that adult catechetics right at the beginning of December. So the first Tuesday in Advent is the first day of December. The 1st of December we're going to be beginning adult catechetics. So if you know some people who are interested in getting a very solid and very traditional Catholic catechism class, then you can pass this information on to friends and family. This information about this will be on our website and our Facebook page. All are welcome to come along. It will normally be an hour to an hour and a half once a week. And... Uh, it's taught out of a very traditional old book called My Catholic Faith. So all are welcome to come along to that. You need to bring your thinking gear and your laughing gear at the same time. So all are welcome and hopefully we'll get a very involved and informed class uh, in that one-year program of learning about what is it that the Catholic Church teaches. And you don't have to be a Catholic to come along. You might end up one after a year and you might not. But uh, as I said, bring your critical thinking along, bring your, your friends and your family, and uh, you're very, very welcome to join us. The other part of this radio apostolate on uh, um, this show is part of Catholic history. Now I've been walking uh, the listeners, you listeners, through the Catholic history of the church for the last three years, I believe it is, or maybe even more now. Uh, and over the last weeks, we have moved into the 14th century after the glories of the 13th century, which was the, the height of the, the Middle Ages of Christendom, and now moved into the time where the nemesis of power is starting to cause great problems in and around the church, the nemesis of power with regards to secular leaders and with regards to church leaders especially the papacy started to fall into a great deal of uh, trouble because of this desire and this taking of power for the individual's own purposes rather than what power is given for as a reflection of truth which god himself has passed on power to mankind so that it can reflect the truth that he himself teaches and and uh, and shows in all that he himself lived on earth but unfortunately when man becomes proud and when man turns his back on almighty god then all of a sudden we find ourselves in real trouble and this is one of the things that we find ourselves in the world today is that and i'm not mentioning any one country or any one person in particular but when leaders of secular societies do not base their leadership or their governments on the true law of God, then they find themselves with a man-made law which inevitably will be flawed, whereas God's laws can never be flawed because God has no flaw. And one of the things that we had been talking about in the last couple of weeks was the papacy of Pope Boniface VIII and some of the 
uh, imprudent actions that he had taken, especially in his writings, even though he was writing uh, enough truths in some of the things that he was saying. But unfortunately, uh, his imprudence would lend him to exaggeration or um, criticisms in some of his official writings, which would then put a great spotlight on the papacy as something that had become corrupted. Whereas the papacy itself is given by God, the person can become corrupted. The papacy itself must remain as that which Christ intended it to be. That is the vicarship, the ruling of his, uh, Christ's own church on earth, that there is one who stands in for Christ as his vicar before Christ comes again at the end of time. So... We were in the year 1304 and the last day of the octave of the feasts of Saints Peter and Paul and that year fell on July the 7th. And none of the leaders of the attack on Pope Boniface VIII had appeared in Rome. The next day, Pope Benedict XI would pronounce his judgment upon these leaders. He was supposed to do so, but he never did. Though he had apparently been in good health, it was only in his early 60s. On July the 7th of that year in 1304, he suddenly died, allegedly of dysentery. It was a death so spectacularly convenient for William of Nogaret and Schiara Colonna and Reynald of Supino, all men who had made it exceedingly clear that they would stop at nothing to gain their ends, that it is reasonable to have a strong suspicion of murder of Boniface VIII because uh, he was on the cusp of a great condemnation of what they had done and then all of a sudden uh, the disappearance was there or Benedict XI was to pronounce judgment upon them. There is no proof uh, that there was any ill-doing and historians have shied away from calling Pope Benedict XI's death other than natural. The conclave, therefore, which assembled at Perugia in July of 1304 to elect the next pope, was split almost evenly between supporters of Boniface VIII, mostly cardinals that he had appointed, and opponents, and consequently was soon entirely deadlocked, unfortunately, as had happened in the last 40 years. William of Nogaret, with his matchless arrogance, continued to demand an ecumenical council to review his charges against Boniface VIII, to which he now added sacrilege, usury, homicide, and sodomy to his original counts of heresy and simony. He now denied that he had arrested Boniface or taken him prisoner, but only stopped him from doing further evil. In Perugia, the French embassy was now openly pushing the election as Pope of the French bishop Bertrand de Gaulle of Bordeaux, though he was not even a cardinal. Since Bordeaux was an Aquitaine, the part of France still ruled at that time by England, Bishop Bertrand was not under Philip IV's direct political control. It could therefore be argued that Bertrand was not necessarily Philip's puppet. And in June of 1305, three of the originally pro-Boniface cardinals joined the nine opposed to him to create a bare two-thirds majority, 12 of 18, to elect Bertrand. He took the name of Clement V. Though most of the cardinals pleaded with Clement V to come quickly to Rome, seeking to reconciliate Philip IV, he agreed to be crowned in the French city of Lyon in the French king's presence. The coronation of the Pope took place on November 14 in the year 1305. 
during that coronation, a wall crumbled and collapsed under the weight of spectators. Just as the procession of high dignitaries was passing, killing Duke John of Brittany and severely injuring Philip IV's brother Charles of Valois. The new Pope was thrown from his horse, possibly receiving internal injuries, and the great ruby which Boniface VIII had placed in the pinnacle of the papal tiara in 1299 fell off and was lost, or perhaps even stolen. This was a grim omen for the beginning of a pontificate. Contrary to what many later are believed by historical hindsight, it does not appear the new Pope had decided from the first not to go to Rome. But it's apparent that he was resolved not to cross the mighty and ruthless Philip IV, whom he may well have suspected of ultimate responsibility for the death of his two predecessors. On February the 1st, 1306, he annulled both papal bulls Clitius Leucos and Unam Sanctam, further specifying that the latter was not directed at the King of France, his kingdom or his subjects. But Philip was inexorable. In May 1307, meeting with Pope Clement V at Poitiers in France, Philip renewed his demand for a canonical trial of Pope Boniface VIII as a heretic, with a further demand, if he was found guilty, to remove his name from the catalogue of popes, exhume his body and burn it and scatter his ashes to the four winds. Now, no such demand had been made in the history of Christendom since the ghastly synod of the corpse in the year 897, when the body of Pope Formosus was dug up and put on trial. Furthermore, it appears that it was at this time that Philip first presented to Clement what he claimed was evidence that the famous crusading order of the Templars was involved in occult and obscene practices, idolatry and Satanism, and therefore should be suppressed. Now, these are things that we hear commonly in our day and age, but when we know our history, when we know what type of person first brings up such an accusation and the surrounding circumstances, we start to realise the weakness of such a rumour. A short time afterwards, Jacques de Molay, Grand Master of the Templars, arrived in Poitiers and Clement V informed him of Philip IV's accusations against him and his order. In September of the same year, 1307, Philip IV issued secret orders to all his senecals, bailiffs, deputies and other law enforcement officers throughout the Kingdom of France with instructions that they not be opened until the night of October the 12th. At dawn on the 13th, following these orders, almost all the Templars in France were arrested and their property confiscated. That's an important point. On the following day, William of Nogaret, now Chancellor of France, called leading faculty members of the University of Paris to meet him in a chapter room of Notre Dame Cathedral to hear his charges against the Templars, that they had denied Christ that they had spat on crucifixes, that they had worshipped an idol in the shape of a human head, that they had omitted the words of consecration at Mass, and that they had practiced sodomy. The fact that the Templars had a rule of secrecy regarding their rites and practices as an order made it easier for people to believe these fantastic accusations, which so resembled the fast multiplying charges William of Nogaret had brought up 
against the Pope he treacherously attacked and whose death his actions hastened. On October 19, interrogation of 138 Templar prisoners in Paris began in the cellar of their own former dwelling supervised by Chief Inquisitor William Imbert. Within a week, Grand Master de Molay and four other Templars had confessed to denying Christ and spitting on a crucifix. Pope Clement V protested vigorously and publicly on the 28th, declaring that as the Templars were a religious order, the Pope and not the King of France should decide when and who among them should be prosecuted and by what means. After clearly implying that torture had been used to obtain the confessions, Pope Clement declared, quote, In this hasty action all men see, and not without reasonable cause, an insulting scorn of us and of the Roman Church, unquote. By the, but by the next month, now fully aware of Philip's relentless determination to destroy the Templars, Pope Clement's nerve failed him. He sent papal bulls to the king, authorising the general arrest of all Templars in France and calling for similar action in other European countries. Of the 140 Templars arrested October 12th, all but four had confessed by November 24 to sacrilege and blasphemy, about three quarters to obscenity and about one quarter to inciting others to sodomy. Joseph Stalin and his secret police chiefs were to reenact the whole repulsive spectacle in the Soviet purge trials some six centuries later. A careful analysis of the charges against the Templars demonstrating their inherent improbability the absence of supporting evidence, in fact, in most cases, none whatsoever, and the mass of contradictions in the coerced confessions renders it virtually certain that the Templars were as innocent as Stalin's purge victims of the crimes, plots, and horrors imputed to them. But one of the important things looking back now that we need to realise is that the Templars had come from a noble class and many of them possessed great wealth and lands even though they were not often uh, keeping these lands while they were uh, living their lives as Templars but all of these lands were confiscated and we start to see within that where the political intrigue itself uh, has its basis. In February of 1308... De Molay and most of the other Templars who had confessed under torture repudiated their confessions in the presence of representatives of the Pope. And Pope Clement made another effort to take charge of the investigation and gain custody of the accused men. But predictably, William of Nazareth and Philip IV fiercely opposed any restraint. When Clement continued to resist them, In July, Philip renewed his demand that he can convoke an ecumenical council in France, once again changing the the shifting goalposts and putting pressure back on the Pope, and that he exhume and burn the bones of Boniface VIII along with condemning the, the Templars. He now added the highly significant demand that the Pope maintain his residence in France, not going to Italy. Pope Clement V was not a strong or resolute man, and there's good reason to believe he was very frightened of Philip IV, as indeed he had cause to be. 
He seems to have had very little of the divinely inspired courage that had sustained other popes in situations equally or even more difficult and dangerous. Clement V should not have accepted any of the four demands of Philip IV to convoke a council in France, to condemn the Templars, to stay in France rather than going to Rome and to convict the dead Pope Boniface VIII of heresy and strike his name from the list of popes. But it was only the last demand that he could not accept since no Pope can teach heresy or be removed alive or dead from the catalogue of the Popes. And it was, the, it was only the last demand that he did not accept. And this is one of the terrible sad moments uh, of the weakness of a human being. On August the 12th, 1308, Pope Clement V announced announced to his cardinals that he would transfer the papal court and residence indefinitely to the city of Avignon in a region of France called the Comte Venessin, which St. Louis IX had granted to the papacy as a possession, that he would hold an ecumenical council at Vienne near Lyon, now effectively a part of France, in November 1310, and that he would agree to reopening the proceedings against Boniface VIII in February 1309. He actually took up residence in Avignon in March 1309, but worked with considerable success to delay the commencement of the proceedings against Boniface, Boniface VIII. In September 1309, in the papal bull Letamor Inte, he stated his personal conviction that Boniface VIII was not guilty of heresy. In December, Philip sent three emissaries to Clement at Avignon, one of them William of Nazareth, all demanding that he speed up the process against the dead Pope. It finally began in March 1310, more than a year after it was originally scheduled, and the Pope continued his delaying tactics, postponing one of its hearings because he had a nosebleed, another because he had a stomach ache, and William of Nazareth was the prosecutor. William, Pope Clement did not dare remove him from the case, though the late Pope's defenders vigorously demanded it. But he did personally refuse him Easter communion, since he was, on paper, still excommunicated for the crime at Anagni. On May the 12th, 1310, a French provincial church council sentenced 54 accused Templars to execution uh, for heresy by burning at the stake, despite the fact that all had withdrawn their earlier confessions before a papal commission and now protested their innocence to the last. It was clear that Philip IV and his ministers were determined to retain effective control of the disposition of the Templar prisoners. The reasons for their determination to destroy the Templars have never been fully clear. Though they obtained some of the order's property and funds, much of it eventually went to the other crusading order, the Knights of the Hospital, which was clearly not involved in the prosecution. It was probably simply an exercise in state terrorism to impose the absolute regime of Philip IV more firmly upon France. The astonishingly vicious prosecution of the Templars was essentially the work of the same man who had planned and carried out the assault on Boniface VIII. The relentless pursuit of the Templars shows the same tactics as those employed against Boniface VIII and Guichard de Troyes, a war of propaganda 
the summoning of the estates, speeches to the common people, violence, charges of heresy and grotesque accusations of dealings with sukubi and incubi. The whole course of the trial reveals the undisguised hand of William of Nazareth. It is impossible to know for certain whether Nazareth inspired the king's policy or was simply carrying out the orders of Philip, the so-called fair. In any case, the king and his minister together contrived the suppression of the Templars. To achieve their ends, they exerted overbearing pressure on a poor pope in, uh, weak in health and weak and conciliatory also in character. They blackmailed Clement V by constantly threatening him with the resumption of the trial of Boniface VIII. In this way, they succeeded in overcoming the pontiff's distaste for the task and forced him to make the most regrettable concessions. Now, in other parts of Europe, meanwhile, there had been a change of emperors. Albert of Habsburg was assassinated in May 1308 by Duke John of Swabia and three companions on a forest path. Six months later, the Count of Luxembourg, vigorous and in prime of life, was elected Emperor Henry VII by six of the seven electoral votes. Henry obtained the cooperation of Frederick of Austria, Albert's son, despite the fact that he had been passed over in the election. Pope Clement V confirmed Henry's election in June 1309 and announced that he would crown him in St. Peter's in February 1312. The new emperor sent messages to the major Italian cities announcing his election and his intention to come soon to Italy to establish peace and his authority there. In September 1310, the Pope formally declared that Henry VII was worthy of the imperial crown and that Italians should support and obey him as their temporal lord. The great writer Dante hailed this advent with the following. This is he whom Peter, the vicar of God, exhorts us to honour and whom Clement, the present successor of Peter, illumines with the light of the apostolic benediction, that where the spiritual ray suffices not, there the splendour of the lesser luminary may lend its light, unquote. Henry VII entered Italy in late October, and early in November the Pope announced an alliance between him and the Angevin royal family of Naples, which hopefully would heal at last the destructive division between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines in Italy. By this time, Philip IV was distinctly uneasy with Pope Clement's strong support of the vigorous new emperor. If Henry were able to establish himself as ruler of northern Italy and allied with the king of Naples in southern Italy, this would create a strong counterweight to France as the greatest power in Christendom. Clement V would no longer be effectively controlled by the pressures Philip could bring to bear against him. He signaled this in January of 1311 by sharply criticizing Philip for pillaging the property of the Templars, seizing Lyon and challenging the rights of the emperor, warning him not to follow the course of his ancestor and namesake, Philip II Augustus, at the beginning of the 13th century. This impressive and dramatic advent of a new emperor intervening actively in Italy may well be the reason that at this point Philip IV abated some of his pressure on Pope Clement V and showed a willingness to settle the disputes growing out of the assault on Pont Boniface VIII at Agnani. 
In February of 1311, Philip wrote to the Pope, agreeing to let him decide on the disposition of the proceedings against Boniface VIII. In other words, he was no longer insisting on his condemnation and removal from the catalogue of popes and the exhumation and desecration of his body. But Philip coupled this with a renewed demand for the prompt conclusion of the proceedings against the Templars and their total condemnation. Clement V made no further attempts to save the Templars and just after Easter 1311 formally declared the innocence of Philip IV and all other Frenchmen except William of Nazareth of the crime at Anagni. Even Schiata Colonna was absolved. Nazareth was released from excommunication on condition that he make several pious pilgrimages and go to the Holy Land on the next crusade. There was no next crusade and Nazareth never made the pilgrimage, of course. In effect, the Pope had dropped all action against the leaders of the attack on Pope Boniface VIII in return for Philip's willingness to leave his body and his memory in peace. This was obviously not a satisfactory conclusion to this affair, but in this state of great unease with this very, very powerful French king causing so much strife and distress uh, with the papacy, uh, the Pope at that time thought that this was the way out of it. So we will pick up this story next week. Um, We're running out of time for today. So just a reminder to everybody about our Mass at St. Paul's College and Richmond Road in Ponsonby on Sunday at 9 a.m. That's our our sung Mass. So everybody's welcome along with that. Have a look at our website, fssp.nz, or our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. And all are welcome to come along to our daily Masses, of course, at St. Anne's in Seattle South. And uh, we hope that you have a happy and a holy weekend. Remain in the state of grace. It's the single most important thing that God is giving to each and every one of us. So we uh, ask God's blessing on you all and hope to have you back listening here again next week. God bless.